with a massive stage, and on that stage are two Steinway grand pianos, about 10 yards apart, one stage right, the other is stage left. An eight-year-old walks on the stage, and she draws herself close to one of those Steinways, the Steinway stage right. She surveys all the 88 keys, and with her right index finger, she strikes middle C. And everyone is amazed, because Steinway on stage left resonates middle C back. When you strike middle C on one piano, it resonates middle C in an unmanned piano. I'm no pianist. But I know middle C is central and vital to any song played on a piano. The gospel is to the church as middle C is to a piano and playing music. And this morning we're going to look at a historic meeting in which the Apostle Paul journeys to Jerusalem and he strikes the middle sea of the gospel surrounded by men of influence. James and Cephas and John. And he strikes middle sea to, to, to see what happens. And it resonates with these three men. Wholehearted gospel resonance. This morning, I want to make a case for you that the gospel of Jesus Christ must be what unites us as a church above all else. It's what unites us. The gospel is our middle C as a church in which we play all of our music. So here's how I'm going to walk us through it. I'm going to walk you through Galatians chapter 2, 1 through 10. It's a historic account. And so what I'm going to want you to see is the, the, the kind of the historic background to this, to this meeting that took place. And then I want you to show you a courtroom drama that takes place at that meeting. Paul has a star witness. And then I want you to see how this courtroom drama unfolds in the extending of the right hand of fellowship. It is, this, it is this snapshot with words that needs to be in your minds. So I'm going to walk you through it, I'm going to make a point, and I'm going to try to apply this in four ways if I've got time. So let's look at the background of this historic meeting, and it's in verses 1 and 2 of of Galatians chapter 2. We read first, then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem. 14 years. 14 years after his conversion. And so earlier in chapter 1, we learned that Paul was dramatically converted by Christ on the road to Damascus. It was something that God, Christ, had done. And then three years after that, he goes up to Jerusalem for the first time for an informal visit with Peter for just over two weeks. And then there's this passage of time, 10 plus years until 
until Paul goes back to Jerusalem. And when he goes back to Jerusalem, he's not traveling alone. Which brings me to the next thing I want you to see. He brings Barnabas with him. And he takes Titus along with him. It's the makings of a good joke. Good go like this. Hey, have you heard the one about the apostle who brings a circumcised Jew and an uncircumcised Gentile to Jerusalem to talk to a bunch of other apostles? But what you need to understand is, this is no joke. This is strategic. We'll come back to that in a, minute, in a, little, in a little bit. But what you need to see is, Paul has a mixed traveling group going to Jerusalem 14 years after his conversion. And then we see why Paul went. Verse 2, I went up because of a revelation. God had directly disclosed to the Apostle Paul, I want you going to Jerusalem now. Now we're not told in here in Galatians 2 what that revelation actually was. So it could be a revelation that is unrecorded for us. It's something that was distinct that happened to Paul. Or it could be something that's revealed to us. And my hunch is that this is actually a reference to a prophecy recorded in Acts chapter 11, verses 27 through 30. There, there's this prophet who comes down from Jerusalem. His name is Agabus. And Agabus comes to the church in Antioch where Paul and Barnabas were. The church of Antioch was primarily a Gentile church. And this prophet comes down and he reveals something to this church. That there is a famine coming. And the response of this church, these Gentiles converted to Christ, was to gather financial help and send it with Barnabas and Paul to Jerusalem. That's what I think is actually going on here. The point of it, though, is that God has called this meeting in Jerusalem. God initiated this meeting in Jerusalem 14 years after Paul's conversion. This is God's doing, which means God wanted this meeting to happen, which means God has a purpose for this meeting. And his purpose is to unite his people in the gospel of Jesus Christ. A little bit more background. It's who Paul and his companions go to meet with. We see this in verse 2 again. I went up because of a revelation and set before them who is this them? Well, parenthetically, in the ESV, we're told, though privately from those who seemed influential. If you look down at verse 6, we read, and from those who seemed to be influential, and then just a little bit further down in verse 6, I say, who seemed influential, and then if you go down to verse 9, who seemed to be pillars, there is a group of men in Jerusalem that Paul, Barnabas, and Titus are going to meet. Paul actually names them in verse 9. They are James, Cephas, a.k.a. Peter, and John. All three men have New Testament books with their name on it. That's who they're going to meet. Now, if you notice, it's an interesting way to describe these people. 
these who seemed influential. It's, it's like Paul is distancing himself from them, and he is. On the one hand, he's not denying their authority. On the other hand, he's not deifying them either. And what he's doing is he is maintaining his own apostleship, that he himself has been set apart by Christ himself to proclaim a gospel to the Gentiles. That was important for the Galatians to hear. In other words, the Apostle Paul is not in the back pocket of these Jerusalem men of influence. Well, the reason why Paul is going up to Jerusalem is because this is a private meeting. Did you notice that in verse 2? Though privately before those whom seemed influential in that parenthesis. In other words, this isn't a public meeting. This isn't the Council of Jerusalem that we read about in Acts 15 that happened in 50 AD. This is a private meeting that took place before that. But both meetings were dealing with the same thing. The question that was being raised at this time in the early church was this. Was it necessary for Gentiles to be circumcised in order to be saved? Did a Gentile who's not a Jew, who's not circumcised, did they need to become a Jew first in order to be saved, to become a Christian? In other words, do they need to obey the Mosaic law in order to be a Christian? That was the issue at hand, and that's why God is sending Paul up to Jerusalem, and when Paul gets to Jerusalem, he is going to hit the middle sea of the gospel at this private meeting and see where the chips fall. Which brings me to the focus of this meeting. He says, I went up to, I went up because of a revelation and set before them the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles. He's there because of the gospel. On one hand, the circumstances surrounded circumcision. But Paul has recognized the real issue at hand is not circumcision. It is the very nature of the gospel of Jesus Christ itself. What is necessary for a sinner to be saved? Did a, do a, a, does a Gentile sinner need to believe in Jesus plus be circumcised or eat kosher foods or observe Jewish holy days in order to be made right with God? And Paul is going up to say nothing of that sort. Paul's going to proclaim a gospel that he, he lays out for us in chapter 1, verse 4, that this gospel is Christ who has given himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age and to place us into God's family, all by his grace, by faith alone, in God's grace alone. Works can have nothing to do with it because it's a salvation of God from beginning to end. That phrase that we read, the, I set before them the gospel that I proclaim, it, it's, that phrase is used in the end of the book of Acts 
of Festus laying out Paul's case before King Agrippa. In other words, Paul is going up to Jerusalem to meet with these influential men in order to lay out a case for the gospel of grace. And what we're going to see in a second is he's got a star witness. But before we get there, I just want to point out one thing. It seems as though something's weighing on Paul. Look at the end of verse 2. I went up to Jerusalem by way of a revelation to set before these men of influence the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. That's, that's an interesting thing for Paul to say. When he uses running language, he's, it's, it's a way of him describing his 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 gospel labor, his, his ministry, the hard work involved with that. And he's asking the question, hey, I'm, I'm wondering if this is all worth it. And one can think when you read this that, hey, Apostle Paul, wait, hold on a second. Are you having second thoughts about the gospel? Because that's kind of what it sounds like. Are you wondering if you're running in vain? What do you mean? You think you got the wrong gospel? But that's not what he's saying. And there are a couple reasons why that makes no sense. The first is this. It's been 14 years since he was converted and commissioned by Christ to preach the gospel. That's a little long to have some unresolved questions about the nature of the gospel. Second, in chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, Paul makes it very clear that this gospel is not man's gospel but a revelation of God that was given to him. Paul has no questions about the nature and power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what's he concerned about? He's concerned about the practical outcome of this meeting. And here's why. These men who seemed influential, these, these apostles in Jerusalem... If they had any reservations about the gospel that Paul was preaching, it could open the door. It could open the door to false teachers in Galatia making a claim. Something like this. They were, a false teacher would say, yeah, we heard about what the, uh, the Jerusalem apostles were saying, that they didn't really buy Paul's gospel, and so Galatians, don't buy into what Paul is preaching to you. Believe what we're saying, that you not only need to believe in Jesus, but you need to be circumcised too in order to be saved. Paul is very concerned about what the outcome would be of this meeting on Gentile churches. He knows that this could result in Christian Gentiles being enslaved by a false gospel. But he's also concerned about the overall unity of the church. Because if these apostles don't fully embrace this gospel that he preaches, the very foundation of the church, that's going to open the door to a dividing of the church to now two churches. You've got the Gentile church and you've got the Jewish church. So what Paul is actually concerned about is what's at stake, the unity and the health of of the church of Christ. That's why he says 
fearing that he may have labored in vain. If these men don't fully agree to Paul's gospel, it means slavery and division for the church universal that would have been laboring in vain. So we've got a sense of the background of what's going on here. That's a lot to pack into two verses, I realize that. But what we see going on here is we have Paul, Barnabas, Titus going to Jerusalem because God has sent them in order to have a meeting with James, Cephas, and John in order to hit the middle sea of the gospel because there's a lot riding on it. And so now in verses 3 and 5, we have a courtroom drama unfold. Paul makes his case for the gospel of grace. If we can just go back to verse 2, we see, I went up because of a revelation and set before them the gospel that I proclaim. I have laid my, I've laid my case out before them. That this is a gospel of grace received by faith alone. There's no place for works. We can't add anything to our salvation. This is an invitation-only meeting. Remember that. Paul then, in verse 3, makes his appeal to his star witness, Titus. Imagine Paul calling Titus to stand before this group of men in whom this meeting has been called by God. Imagine this. Paul. Titus, are you a Gentile? Titus says, yes. Titus, are you circumcised? Titus says, no. Titus, are you saved? Yes, I am. Paul, how, how are you saved, Titus? Titus replies something like, I was saved only by trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ on my behalf. Jesus gave himself for my sin in order to pluck me out of this world and place me into the family of God. He set me free. It's by faith alone and God's grace alone. Paul, Titus, what difference then would it make for you to be circumcised? Titus responds, it would make no difference. Because it was by God's grace alone that I have been adopted into his family. He caused his spirit to come and dwell in me. And his spirit bears witness to my spirit that I am his son and a brother to everyone in this room who proclaims Christ. He's given me a new heart. And there's nothing that I desire more than to live a life of faithful obedience for the glory of my risen Savior, not in order to earn my salvation, but because I have been saved. He died for me so that I could live for Him. Paul, circumcision does not give me a new heart. It does not place me into the new people of God, the church. Only the gospel does that. Could you imagine being at a meeting like that? Did it happen this way? I, to be honest with you, I, I, I don't know. But I can see with my eyes the result. But even Titus was not forced to be circumcised. 
Could you imagine the Apostle Paul going up to James, the brother of Jesus? James, do you think that Titus needs to be circumcised in order to be saved? James, no. Salvation is by faith alone, in God's grace alone, in Christ alone. Peter, does Titus need to be circumcised in order to be saved? Does he need to do anything in addition to believing in Jesus in order to be rescued by the grace of God? Peter says, absolutely not. That is enough. To John, Paul says, does Titus, John, need to be circumcised in order to be saved, to be set free? To which John says, no. Circumcision, that doesn't save anybody. Only God's grace in the cross of Jesus Christ. Only believing that is someone saved. The Apostle Paul is striking the middle sea of the gospel at this meeting, private meeting in Jerusalem. And none of these apostles are requiring Titus to be circumcised because the gospel doesn't require Titus to be circumcised. God doesn't require Titus to be circumcised. God doesn't require any of us in this room to do anything addition to believing in the finished work of Christ in order to be saved. That is good news. That is the gospel. But not everyone at this meeting was in agreement. Because in verses 4 and 5, we read about some false brothers secretly brought in. That, that the, the Greek there is just yet because of false brothers who snuck in. False brothers is pseudo-Christians. Guys that are just looking the part. It's kind of like this. Have you ever been to a conference and you get a lanyard and your name's printed on a lanyard? These guys heard about this private meeting and they had these lanyards made outside of this meeting and their name's printed on it and they're kind of like... <laughs> and walked into this meeting. It says they slipped in in order to spy out our freedom. I know what it's like to slip in. I practiced a lot of slipping in when I was in high school. My parents were asleep. I slipped in past my curfew because I didn't want them to wake up. I didn't want to deal with it. These false brothers slipped in, but they didn't slip in in order to, because they were past their curfew. They were slipping in to spy out. They were undercover agents. There was a group called the Judaizers. This is, this is a, a group of false teachers who are saying that you need to become a Gentile, need to become a, a Jew first, to be practicing the law first before they become right with God. It's, it's, it's by your works in addition to your faith that you're made right with God. And, and, and Paul is completely repudiating that. He says, no, 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 no. That's not it at all. These false brothers slipped into this meeting in order to spy out what Paul says, our freedom in Christ. Freedom from having to earn God's favor through our obedience. Freedom from having to perform and impress God so that he would be like, oh, come on in, here's something special. He says, no, 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 no. They came to spy out the freedom we have in Christ that it's by grace alone, in Christ alone, by faith alone. These false brothers with these 
fake lanyards. They weren't there to learn. They weren't there to benefit. They weren't there to contribute. They were there so that they might bring us into slavery. They were there to proclaim a false gospel to enslave people to. They were bringing in the law again. Verse 5, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, Paul says. Sounds like these false brothers try to make a case against Titus. Sounds like they wanted to cross-examine him. Say, no, 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 no. You need to be circumcised too, buddy. And Paul says, hey, we didn't even, we didn't put up with that junk for a moment. Don't you wish the Holy Spirit recorded for us what happened next? What the apostles did with these Judaizers, these enslavers? I can imagine Paul. You men are preaching a different gospel. You must either repent or be damned because you're enslaving those who listen to you and we're not going to have it here. Rips their lanyards off and says, now leave. Paul is recognizing that these false brothers, like the false teachers in Galatia, were a threat to the freedom we have in Christ. Freedom from living under the law. Freedom to live for God by grace. And we're told at the end of verse 5 why Paul confronts these false teachers so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. The you are the Galatians. It's a plural you, you all. Paul's saying, hey, all this happened in order to preserve, to protect the truth of the gospel. The gospel message is built on reality, the truth of what Christ has done, the true freedom that comes through this message. He says, we did this to pre preserve this gospel for you, Gentile Christians in Galatia, and for us us Gentile Christians in Kenosha 2,000 years later. You feeling the love? This meeting happened so that we could live in the freedom Christ purchased for us at the cross. So at this historic meeting, Paul lays out a case for the gospel of grace, brings forward his star witness, and defends it against these false claims that will just enslave everybody who professes Christ. And he makes a pretty successful case. Given what happens next from James, Peter, and John, something historic happens. And you should have this Photograph of it in your mind. In verses 6 through 10, we have the historic handshake of gospel unity. If you look at verse 9, and when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that it was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me. They extend the right hand of fellowship. It's essentially saying, we're in it. We totally agree with everything that you're proclaiming. We're on board. 
We're in this together to bring this gospel to everyone, everywhere. Now, it's interesting what precedes verse 9 because there's a little bit of an argument, a case. Negatively, in verse 6, Paul says this. He says, I say that these men who seemed influential, you know, in God's eyes, no big deal. And so in my eyes, it's no big deal. But those who seemed influential added nothing to me. Kind of sounds snarky. But what he's saying is this. Hey, I, I made my case. And James, Peter, and John, they, they smelled nothing off of it. They didn't add anything to it. Nothing needed to be adjusted. Nothing to be, needed to be taken away or added. They had nothing to add. Nothing was off. That's the negative argument, part of the argument. And then positively, he says in verse 7 through 9, that they didn't see anything off. And what they did see was God's grace in me. In verse 7, we read this. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry, for the to the circumcised, worked also through me, my apostolic ministry to the Gentiles. What, what, what Paul is saying here is they recognized it. They saw God at work in me. Just as they saw God at work in Peter, they saw God at work in me. And in verse 9, we read, perceiving, seeing the grace that was given to me. These, these three men, the reputed pillars, they are not pronouncing that Paul is an apostle. They're not authorizing his apostolic ministry. They are simply recognizing God's grace in his calling of Paul as an apostle. And so, having nothing to add and seeing God's power, his grace at work in Paul to entrust him with the gospel, to proclaim to the Gentiles... They say, let's shake on it. We're all on the same page, baby. Snapshot. It's the snapshot. Snapshot of gospel unity. One God, one gospel, two men going to two very different people groups, all according to God's glorious plan to pronounce, announce His grace in Christ that can only be received by faith. To all people everywhere. You know what's interesting is that Paul went into this meeting concerned that he had labored in vain. But God had ordained this meeting to unite his church around the one true gospel of grace. And when Paul hits that middle sea, these men of repute are like, yes and amen. Let's shake on it, baby. Paul had not been running in vain, and now he realizes he is certainly not running alone. But we 
can't miss verse 10. With the right hand of fellowship, James, Cephas, and John, they make this appeal to Paul. You see in verse 10? Only they asked, as they're shaking their hands, only they asked, they asked us to remember the poor. The poor that they're most likely referencing are not all poor people everywhere, but a more specific group of materially impoverished people. It's the poor Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. These Jewish Christians who have converted to Christ, this famine that Agabus had prophesied of, it was hitting the region. And these apostles to the Jews, shaking the hands of this apostle to the Gentiles, says, hey, remember the materially impoverished brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. It's, it's like, hey, we're, we're, we're one in Christ. And you know what Paul says? It was the very thing I was eager to do. Wouldn't you have loved to be there? If it's true that this is all tied to this revelation, this prophecy of Agabus, it's tr imagine this. They're shaking hands. <laughs> James, Cephas, John say, hey, don't forget about the poor. And Paul's shaking their hands saying, yeah, we, you know, we're on Middle Sea, baby. And he goes, oh, by the way, I've got this check for $20,000 from the Gentile church in Antioch, and it is for you. It demonstrates the unity. Paul was eager to do it. It's one of the reasons why God sent him there. This, this unity of helping one another in need flows from the gospel. God had orchestrated the whole thing. This primarily Jewish church in need being helped by a primarily Gentile church with means, one God, one gospel, one church. They're all singing off of all playing off of the middle sea of the gospel together. Talk about putting your money where your mouth is. This really happened this way. It's striking, incredibly encouraging that God would be orchestrating things like this. Okay, so we've seen the background, we've seen the, uh, the courtroom drama, we've seen the historic handshake. Here's the point of it all. The gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ is what must unite us above all else. That's what we see happening in the early church, and it's what must be happening in our church. It must be the thing that unites us. There's nothing else that can unite us. It's the only thing that does unite us in the eyes of God. So let me just point you to four ways that we seek to be united in the gospel together. The first is what happens here on a Sunday morning. The gospel is what unites us here on a Sunday morning. 
the whole reason why we're gathering together. The primary reason why you're here is because of Jesus. It's not because of where we live. It's not because of the time of day. It's because of what Jesus has done for each of us that unites us. So here's how you think about the Sunday morning service. It's, it's a weekly gospel unifier. From the time we greet one another in the name of the Lord, that's a gospel greeting. The songs that we sing, they are gospel-rich songs to remind us of what God has done for us in Christ. And not only do we sing that, but the people around us hear us singing that. In Colossians 3, it ministers to one another. When we have public confession together, or we observe the Lord's Supper together, those are all ways in which we are able to run to the gospel together. Whoever's in this pulpit preaching, Sunday after Sunday, they are going to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ from all the pages of the scriptures, because all the pages of the scriptures point to Jesus Christ. So what you need to think about this Sunday morning gathering is, it is a gospel unifier, a gospel refresher, and you need it week after week. It's got to be a priority because it unites us in what matters most, the gospel. So every Sunday here in this building We are striking the middle sea of the gospel. It's the only thing that can unite us above all else. The second way in which we are united by the gospel is much more personal. If if the first point was kind of middle sea corporately, this point is middle sea personally. We must get the gospel into the crank house of our hearts. We got to live it. I've got some suggestions here. There's some very helpful books to read. I have four gospel primers up here by Milton Vincent. Very helpful ways to learn how to rehearse the gospel to yourself every day. But I want to show you my favorite way, and it doesn't have to do with reading a book like that. It's looking into the book. Would you turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2? Could you imagine what will happen if you were to regularly do this exercise that I'm suggesting? I've shown you this before. In Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 10, we have gospel. And what I'm suggesting is you take the you and make it a me. And I was dead in the trespasses and sins in which I once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom I once lived in the passions of my flesh, carrying out the desires of my body and my mind. I was by by nature a child of wrath, like the rest of mankind. That's who I was. That's who you were. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved me, even when I was dead in my trans- 
trespasses made me alive together with Christ. By grace I have been saved and I, he raised me up with him and seated me with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards me in Christ Jesus. For by grace I have been saved through faith. And this is not my own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of my works so that I wouldn't have to boast for I am his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that I should walk in them. You see how that works? Could you imagine doing that a couple times a week for a month? You're going to find yourself, the gospel, in your crank house. This is who I am by God's grace. It's true. The truth of the gospel. I think I'm running out of time. The third way, life groups, gospel unions, brothers and sisters. Life group leaders, learn to strike the middle sea of the gospel every time your life group gathers. Give them the gospel, remind them of the gospel, rehearse the gospel together. It's really easy as a life group to focus on your differences. It's easy to do things like this. Well, I don't like this person, I'm not going. This person stinks. I don't want to go because I can't believe he said this about me. Honey, why are we doing this life group thing? Here's why you're doing it. Because it is a gospel union. It reminds you that you belong to Christ along with these other people all around your, that room. Do you know what happens when a life group is experiencing gospel unity? There's a hunger for God's word. There's a growing depth of relationships. There's a joyful desire to obey Jesus and all he commanded. And there is a mission-mindedness. It's the middle C for a small group of Christians in our church. Lastly, when the gospel is resonating in our souls, we will be looking for opportunities to help other Christians in real need. When a need arises, it's going to be the very thing that we're eager to do because we're united to them in Christ. That might be an individual Christian, that might be another church here in Kenosha or around the world. Let's be looking for opportunities. Brothers and sisters, the gospel is our middle C as a church. It's from where we sing. It's from where we serve. It's why we gather. The gospel must unite us above all else. Let's pray. God in heaven, we do ask that you would use Galatians 2, 1 through 10, to form your mind in our church that we would be a church with the gospel at the center of who we are informing all that we do as long as we're here. God, would you fan into flame our love for you and our love for others through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name I pray. Amen.